my point is that it's the talent we, we all have and some of us are privileged because that talent is stimulated based on our family but that doesn't mean that others cannot stimulate their talent independently i'm of the belief that entrepreneurs do not actually uh, are not risk takers uh, they're risk navigators Yeah. Fools are risk takers. That they go to Las Vegas and throw the dice. <laughs> uh, it's you know, good entrepreneurs are those who understand. Uh, just kind of like a pilot, uh, you know, a pilot uh, has a checklist. As you know, they, you know, if if they didn't want to take any risk, there no no planes would ever take off. Uh, and the expectation sometimes of entrepreneurs is this. Uh, immediate satisfaction you know i want to get rich quick i where is my money where is my you know and and that just in real life doesn't work now and that's next on bootstrapping your dreams show so the big question is this how are ambitious people like us who don't have a lot of resources did not go to ivy league colleges were not born into wealth how do we become resourceful enough use our creativity our dedication and a little bit of crazy to bootstrap our way to realizing our dreams whether it is launching a new company launching a new app or making it to the top of the corporate ladder that is the question and this podcast will give you the answers hey listeners and viewers we have created a tremendous community of bootstrappers entrepreneurs and professionals who are ambitious resourceful and want to get things done we brainstorm support and help each other out come join us navigate to bootstrapping.group that is bootstrapping.group hello and welcome to this new episode of bootstrapping your dreams show i'm your host manoj agarwal and today we'll be talking with sid mohasab so sid at 16 migrated to the us with his family and at 21 he started and exited his first company while he was still at college at 25 he taught comparative eastern and western philosophy at 27 he became the youngest partner of a national management consulting firm serving fortune 500 clients with operational improvements and strategy formulations during the next two decades he supported large scale acquisition acted as a principal investor in middle market companies leading company turnarounds from near bankruptcy to profitability He also founded and led several early stage and hyper growth companies from inception to acquisition many times over he has shouldered the responsibility for meeting payroll and has written checks to acquire or invest in companies learning to think both like an investor and a founder and facing accepting and overcoming his share of failures and successes in ideas and ventures sid has served on boards of over a dozen profit and non profit companies he is a university professor at different universities a fund manager and an angel investor oh my god you have accomplished so much i am so excited to talk to you and learn from you today uh thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and uh, uh, and i felt kind of old when you were reading all that it was, <laughs> well, it's I, been a it's been a journey <laughs> awesome awesome yeah i focus on your uh the the younger days so i'm curious to know what the latter part of your uh, journey was like so if you can share that with us that will be amazing start uh, in terms of the latter part or the early part 
Um, let's go from wherever you want to pick it up from. Let's sure. take the most interesting part of your life and and share that with us. I'm hoping that the most interesting part is yet to come. Uh, <laughs> but I, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, about the background, and we can drill down any way you like. I think based on your audience, maybe most interested the the last uh, you know decade or two. Uh, but basically, I started uh, very young, and uh, uh, I came from from Iran as a as an immigrant to United States by myself, and I uh, went to college and uh, started my first company. I always had this entrepreneurial dream, essentially, uh, and uh, quickly uh, did one company. Uh, started to work with a management consulting firm where I was fortunate enough to meet a guy. Uh, who was a, a wonderful mentor for me, uh, and I became his partner about uh, you know a few years, six or seven years afterwards, five years afterwards. As a very young guy, uh, those days he took me um, at I don't know 23, 24 years old. He, he would take me to uh, board meetings with president of you know Union Bank or McDonnell Douglas and, and things of that sort. So it was a phenomenal experience. I uh, in the uh, in the mid to late 80s, there was this uh, uh, rush of leverage buyouts in the United States mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of people were making a lot of money off of it. And I was on the uh, consultant side that you know folks from the Wall Street would come to us and say, hey, we want to acquire this, but we don't know how to run a company. Uh, so I was asked to kind of structure the organization, structure the operations, see what we can uh, how we can optimize and improve so that they can get their cash back. After a couple of years of doing that with others, I said, wait a minute, the money is on the other side. It's not me consulting and getting an hourly rate. So I started my own firm doing that and had uh, good fortune in buying a few companies from DuPonts and, and other other sorts in terms of spin-outs. And mostly uh, they had some troubles that needs to be fixing. And that uh, was basically the 90s. And along the way, uh, I started a number of companies, uh, some of them purely by coincidence that, uh, you know, with some opportunity, I thought, hey, this is an opportunity to start. And it became a real company and, and we spit it off and then later on sold it. Uh, but uh, my last company, uh, which I did in that period, didn't do well. It was a big failure. Uh, in the dot com area mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know it was uh, it was a great idea whose time hasn't come and then there mm -hmm. was the dot com stuff which uh, kind of blew it up uh, but uh, I was fortunate enough again that, that that I realized it early and I wrote checks back to uh, some investors I was the major investor and the uh, and we had some VCs and otherwise. And, and at the time when I was writing the checks, I said, we've never seen anything like that. You're crazy. You should. Uh, and then after the crash happened, like two months later, they said, how do you see this? And I said, well, I guess I got lucky. I don't know if, if you could call a loss a lock. But yeah. uh, anyways, uh, after about 2005 or so, when I started another company after that and, and we had a great run, the strategy really worked. We uh, 30 times increased the revenue uh, within a two and a half year time frame, opened up offices around the globe. 
uh, I became an essentially an angel investor. And I was the president of Tech Coast Angels and lived in Orange County and started a venture capital firm, small seed fund, uh, and, and did that for that period. After 2009, which was another downturn of the market, I jumped in as the CEO of one of my portfolio companies and sold that to uh, sold that to KPMG. Um, stayed there as the head of their uh, innovation leadership uh, group and innovation leadership for the strategy group and the head of uh, you know part of the global uh, group for the uh, heading the uh, the data analytics initiative that they had um, at that time. And then I pretty much have been writing. I wrote a book called The Caterpillar's Edge. I'm about to write another book, uh, which is around entrepreneurship, actually, which your audience may be interested in, and what I call the choices and consequences that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, basically teaching at, uh, at USC now as a professor, both in the engineering and, uh, and business school, and, uh, and making some investments and advising some companies and uh, doing a lot of speaking engagements uh, and having a lot of lot of fun on all of that. It's kind of a circle that keeps me creative. At the same time, I'm able to give back. Uh, so it's 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 a great journey. That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, one question that comes to mind is you grew up in Iran, and you know I, I grew up in India. Uh, growing up in in a country like that, um, as compared to Western culture, you. Uh, you pick up a few habits of, uh, you know, few things, uh, kind of mindset. Uh, did you uh, did you have any advantage or disadvantage while uh, you were growing up in Iran? And uh, how did it translate to uh, the environment here in U.S.? Well, I think my, uh, you know, I was 16 when I left. So I'm not sure how much uh, my mind was shaped up from, a, from that perspective. My father uh, was... Uh, you know, he worked for a bank and then he came out and you know, he was doing some consulting work himself. Uh, but he did have an entrepreneurial spirit, if you would. Um, so, uh, you know, it is always, uh, actually I talk about this in my new book, that I believe that everybody is an entrepreneur. Even, you know, you can have your six-year-old uh, kid and the way they negotiate for an ice cream. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, if you look at all the definitions of entrepreneurship, it's about creativity, use of funds appropriately, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff, which probably your mother and mine did as well. They, they used yeah. money efficiently, they applied it, they, they created value for their children and so forth. So my point is that it's the talent we, we all have. And some of us are privileged because that talent is stimulated based on our family. But that doesn't mean that others cannot stimulate their talent independently. Uh, you know, call it a curse or a, or a privilege that that talent, in my case, was, was, was stimulated uh, when I was in Iran and before I came here. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, anybody can actually uh, reach out into their own sort of psyche and, and become an entrepreneur. But I think a lot of these um, boundaries that we set up are generally forced upon us, you know, entrepreneurship is looked upon as more risky than, than a job, which I correct. Really correct. Agree. Yeah, correct. So I, I'm of the belief that entrepreneurs do not actually uh, are not risk takers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're risk navigators. Yeah. Fools are risk takers that they go to Las Vegas and throw the dice. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
it's, uh, you know, good entrepreneurs are those who understand uh, just kind of like a pilot. Uh, you know, a pilot uh, has a checklist as, you know, they, you know if, if they didn't want to take any risk, there no, no planes would ever take off. Yeah. Uh, they have a way of navigating risk, and then you have commercial pilots that do things all you know all the time. You have, and they're kind of like corporate folks. You know, they they have a regimen. There is a boundary. There is a checklist that you manage risk with. And then you have the entrepreneurs. They still have all the challenges of a regular pilot, all the risks that has to be managed. But they're also uh, have a cause. There, it's it's like a jet fighter pilots that go out and they're trying to accomplish something more, more than themselves. They have a mission. They have a cause. But yeah. they're also being shot at all the time. They don't have the luxury of corporate that their you know, cash flow is managed and their finances are provided by somebody else, and they have a risk management department that they can blame if things go wrong. They yeah. they are on the front line essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Now, um, you use a metaphor of a tsunami to characterize some of the innovations that are happening today, like, you know, the social media networks, the internet. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, you know, uh, tsunamis, uh, when I used that originally in the context on a TED Talk that I was doing, uh, was around the social media and how it has actually changed the direction of decisions, if you would. In the past, uh, decision makers, leaders, corporates, uh, if you would, the thought leaders, whoever, whatever you want to call it, would think about something and then uh, that thing would be tested in the market and forced upon people to accept or deny, which mostly they had no choice but to accept. Uh, but now with this change, the power has shifted to the people. And it's actually people who are deciding based on their tweets or based on their Facebook interactions, based on the way they operate. And this is even more now uh, observable when you look at the millennial generation who actually uh, are not that uh, you know, loyal to brands. They say, uh, you know, they believe that they can get more and they deserve more and they believe that they should and they act on it. Uh, so that power has shifted. But, uh, you know, there's another thing about tsunamis that, that it may be um, appropriate to discuss with your, with your audience. And that is, when you're building a company, uh, there are three ways of looking at things. I call them the three waves. There are, there are the waves that are the normal waves. That's, uh, you know, we run on business and every day uh, it, it, needs a, it needs an energy. Those waves are the energy that drives us to do things and they're constant. It's the day-to-day -day shipping of the products or managing the day-to-day, -day, but that needs to be there and the leaders and the entrepreneurs are driving that energy. But then you have the tropical waves where your company needs to jump in a little way. There are massive, there are more massive forces. They may come from the market. They may come from where you need to be. It may be a new product introduction or so forth. And then there are tsunamis, which could be destructive if somebody else generates them, like uh, what happens to uh, uh, you know companies uh, that were operating before iPhone came out. Yeah, yeah, that was a tsunami yeah. that came out. But if you can create as an entrepreneur those kind of tsunamis, then you are the one who really have that 
uh, that power, that that ability to shape an industry. So there's three layers, if you would, of uh, of things that happens, uh, and they are independent and they could be simultaneous. You have to run the business, you have to make sure that things are working, and and then you may have those other tropical and and, and you know uh, and tsunami waves on top of it, but. You can't just say, well, I'm an entrepreneur, I just want to create tsunamis. Those would be destructive to you. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That's a very good insight. Now, can you share some, uh, obviously, you know, uh, most people, if, if asked, they will like to create a tsunami. So can you uh, tell us from your experience, what are some of the nuggets of uh, wisdom you can share on what it takes to create this tsunami? Um, I have tried many times and, and, and I failed many times, but I've succeeded a few. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, they just don't happen. It's not like if I have an idea as a founder, as a scientist, as, as an entrepreneur, then boom, it's just going to happen. Uh, there's a few things. One is timing. Mm. Um, for example, the company that I mentioned to you that failed in 2000 uh, timeframe, uh, right now, you would say how, how it's, it's pretty prevalent. You know, it was about aggregating data through internet, which mm -hmm. wasn't done in 2000. For some of our data scientists, folks, that may sound like well, how could that be? How could that be? Yeah. But that was the competitive knowledge was the company that we designed to do it. But it was too early. The bandwidths were too slow. The companies weren't ready. The databases weren't there. All these other things that are required just weren't there. So timing is, is very critical in doing that. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, the, the notion of what I call relevance. Mm -hmm. And relevance has to do with, is it relevant for our today? <laughs> you know, if somebody would have come up with, uh, you know, I don't know, you're probably uh, young enough to know and some of your audience may not remember, there was something called the Thomas book right? Mm -hmm. The Thomas Guide, where we, you know, when we wanted to find places, that was the thing we look at it and we go from page to page. It was pretty painful, but it got us there. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, now we have the Google and, you know, first this, uh, you know, uh, navigation system came and then it was a great movement. Then we had Google that we have our phone, then we had Waze. And now even if Waze gets me stuck in traffic, I'll throw it out and say, what is this nonsense? Why am I being stuck? Well, mm -hmm. expectations change. Yeah. And as expectations change, those relevance, you know, being relevant becomes critical. Now, when you're creating a tsunami, those have to be sustainable so that it doesn't, it's not a, it's not a declining fad. Mm -hmm. It's, it can't sustain the time so that the, so that the audience, the customers can accept that and internalize it and become a, uh, become a part of it. Um, and and you see thousands of early stage companies that fail because they have an initial gap and then boom it dies because yeah. uh, you know it just doesn't have that stick to itness if you would for the longer yeah. period. Yeah. So uh, from what I'm hearing, you know, you you brought up so many good points. From what I'm hearing, they're all sort of common on, uh, they sort of uh, converge on this keen sense of observation of uh, what is happening around the world in your environment with people, uh, what are they thinking, what are, what, you know, what state of mind they are in and uh, what is resonating with them, yeah? Uh, the other thing that I think is important is the notion of uh, staying real. Mm -hmm. That is, 
I'm not against having big, audacious goals. That's, there's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, a lot of times the distance between here and there is quite long way. And, you know, I use the analogy of the caterpillar in my first book in terms of, you know, always evolving. A caterpillar doesn't sleep one night and then get up the next morning as a butterfly. There's a process, and the process is gooey, it's messy. There's a lot of stuff that happens. There's a lot of danger. A lot of people can step on you. There's, you know, in business, you've got competition, you've got innovation, you've got a lot of stuff. You've got people who quit IP that is compromised. There's a lot of stuff that happens. So it's not just, okay, I see what is relevant around me, and then I'm there. It, it doesn't happen that way. You know, you look at a LinkedIn, and you think, oh, look at this. It took 12, 15 years before they became somebody. Yeah. It wasn't overnight. You know, if you look at all the great companies, that didn't, didn't happen overnight. Uh, and the expectation sometimes of entrepreneurs is this, uh, immediate satisfaction. You know, I want to get rich quick. I, where is my money? Where is my, you know, and, and that just in real life doesn't work. Now, there are examples that has happened, but it's extremely lucky. It's yeah. not, uh, it's not the norm. And I don't think we should compare ourselves uh, with, with norm. We should compare ourselves with what is realistic. And that's when I say, you, we got to stay real. we got to stay with what is achievable. There is a tomorrow. There would be a goal, but we got to work at it. Hard work still pays. Yeah. Um, now, uh, it's two other technologies that are coming up, which I, in my mind, I consider them as, uh, as tsunamis, are uh, machine learning AI and blockchain. Uh, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, well, I actually came back from China teaching a course around AI uh, and China and the investment. So venture capital, China and, and AI. So I'm a big believer in what it can do. I'm a big believer in the capacity and capability of the technologies that may be there. Uh, let's leave blockchain for, for a minute aside. I'll come back to that. Uh, but AI today, the capacity of artificial intelligence is essentially not, it's less than a mouse. Uh, it's, we're not there. Yeah. Um, so there's a long way to go. And, and I hear a lot of people kind of say, oh, the whole world is going to, you know, there's machine mastery. And, you know, what do you think? You know, so someday, 20 years from now, you and I are going to report to our job and say, hello, master, uh, because, you know, the intelligent machine is more intelligent than me. He knows all access to all databases. and So he is the boss. I am the, you know, I'm the worker. And guess what? Uh, does he get paid more than I do? Does he get more vacation? Uh, you know, uh, all of that things that goes with it. But I am a believer in human nature and our capacity to evolve. I think we have physically evolved and AI is providing us mostly in an augmented fashion to mm -hmm. take, a, to expand our ability to process the mundane task of computing alternatives and it would allow us to be more creative. Now, it is a choice by us <laughs> To would want to do that, go through that evolution, and yeah, along the way, there's going to be jobs lost and changes and all that, and you know, we've done that for many, many tens of thousands of years, and I'm a believer that it would. Now, yeah. so that's that's more about AI, and machine learning is basically learning, you know, to feed the machine of how that works. Right yeah. now, one problem is 
this idea of machine learning, which learns from the past. Now, we've got deep learning and other things, but we have to be careful of not duplicating our past. And I think, you know, because machines learn from the patterns of the previous. So this is where creativity comes in. And if there's one place that I say, hey, be careful, is not to uh, kind of, uh, uh, if you would delegate our creativity to the machines. That's where issues become uh, prevalent. On blockchain, uh, it's been around for a talk for a long time. Uh, I haven't really seen any true, uh, you know, significant value all of it. Uh, I think it's just like any other thing in terms of controlling the distribution of information and money. Uh, you know, when we didn't have credit cards, then when credit cards came, oh, we can now control what your purchase is, and you know. So I think it's an—it's not an innovation; it's an extension of the past, which is makes it different than AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, those are very good points, and I completely agree with them for sure. Uh, as you said, it like you know, we are uh, adaptable species, so whatever uh, comes our way, we generally always try to figure out um, and adapt to it. And, you know, that's why we are the most dominant species here on, on this planet. Yeah, but I, I, I just want to, uh, you know, remind us all, including myself, that it is a choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the choice is for us to say, okay, I want to be part of this evolutionary process, as opposed to staying on the sidelines and saying, oh, uh, these machines are going to take over and pushing back and all that. I see that in corporate life in a lot of places all the time, that this idea of sameness, the idea of the addictions that we have to the past, and it is a comfortable thing that we've been doing. What is this nonsense? And, uh, you know, so they, it, it's pulled back in terms of what can be accomplished, uh, which is, I, I think it's to, uh, to our uh, disadvantage as a human race. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you always have uh, two sides of the equation, right? Like exactly. uh, there's a lot of innovation uh, already happening, but there are a lot of people who are um, who are not, you know, very open to change. So uh, slowly as uh, it chips away, you know, people do see the value and hopefully, you know, eventually everything sort of will come together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. That's, uh, those are great points. Now, you, you talked about uh, social media and how it is giving back the power to the consumers and people. But uh, what about uh, surveillance and, you know, all these, um, all these companies sort of uh, invading our privacy? So is that, is that sort of going in the opposite direction here? Uh, well, you know, there is, a, there is a big argument. And I may, you know, some of your audience may not like what I'm about to say. I said, you know... Uh, yes, I get it that if uh, governments control our privacy and eventually we can become the victim of their, uh, I, I get that, you know, that there would be a tyranny and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, if my accounts are clear, why am I afraid of somebody looking at it now? Yeah. Uh, my point is that, okay, if you want to look at it, you've got to pay me. If it's my data... It's not the privacy that bugs me. It's that, you know, big companies use my data to make money, and then I'm not the recipient. It's like any other asset. You want to come use my, you know, use a room in my house? Okay, you're welcome. You got to pay the rent. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, there is one one point there. The other is this is the danger that I think a lot of folks are ignoring. And this is I, I told you I was in China recently, and I just got back three days ago. Mm-hmm. When you look at the Chinese and what they're doing in terms of the use of the data, I get it. They they take pictures of people, and it's uh, privacy issues. But at the same time, going back to your AI topic, artificial intelligence is entirely based on data. That is, when you say machine learning, it needs to learn from something. Yeah, they have unleashed the power of the data. So if you're if you want to build a building, you need concrete, you need wrought irons, you need those things. If you want to need you build an AI machine, you need data. Yeah. And the more we push back and we're trying to control our data, we're going to lose the race because they're not just getting ahead a little. The more data they get, the faster their machines are learning. The yeah. faster their machine are learning. So there is a trade-off between what we can get and what we cannot mm-hmm. achieve. And yeah. I think that we may at times push this idea of privacy a little too far. Now, security is a different thing. Security is if you come, you hack my bank account, and you're able to make money, then yes, there's a problem. Guess what? If I had more control over you without the privacy, then I can eliminate that. Yeah. The reason that you can do what you could do as a hacker is because you are hiding behind this curtain of privacy. Mm-hmm. So it could be the, the reverse argument. You know, yeah. Again, I'm not against privacy. I'm just for balancing and not going in one direction or another direction too far. Very interesting. Now, um, we, uh, we talked about China a couple of times, and there's a lot of talk going about China. Um, and, you know, I completely see how they are making, uh, you know, these these things a priority, like capturing data and uh, advancements in, in all these cutting edge technologies. So what do you think? What, I mean, you have a better perspective on things. Um, do you think that it's actually China becoming a superpower of tomorrow and taking over the U.S. and other uh, richer countries? What are, what are your I- opinions about that? My my thinking is whenever you underestimate your opponent, you are doomed to lose. And I feel that we are underestimating in the United States the power of what is coming, what they're doing, how they're doing it, how much money they're spending on achieving it. You know, they have uh, five-year plans as a part of it. They say we're moving from labor economy to the technology economy. What they're doing is building the robots that they would come to Switzerland, America, and Germany, and those would be the labor force that would be working in those companies alongside our labor. And all their labor is doing is building high-level expensive machinery, and they've moved away from a labor economy. Now, on the opposite side, we're concerned about what do we do with the people in certain part of our country, which are running out of jobs and and it is true they are it is a fact that uh, you know in, in some parts of detroit in middle america there you know they've, they've had jobs and those jobs have been displaced but as opposed to solving the problem we're underestimating the you know the, the opponent and kind of uh, you know dazzling ourselves with this illusion that we're great and forever we will remain great i believe that's the same thing that the romans said when they yeah. uh, before they fell so uh, I've, I've been saying this a lot. Hey, I'm not saying China is great and I'm, you know, it's, it's my new Mecca that I'm, I'm, I'm bowing to. I'm saying 
we got to wake up. we got to see what these guys are doing. And until the time that we entangle in our day-to-day uh, conferences and convolutions and discussions about uh, privacy or not privacy, do we have seven jobs in here, until the days that we're entangled with those things, those guys are making progress. And every day they're making more progress. Yeah, exactly. And and not even in technology, like, you know, uh, this uh, silk, new Silk Road project that they are doing, uh, which is uh, which is a super highway across the continents. I mean, I mean, this kind of infrastructure um, is unheard of, like, you know, uh, and they are conceiving that not just for five years, it's it'll be for next 50, 100 years. Right. Absolutely. They're, they're starting to control the ports across Europe. They're starting to do things in Africa. Uh, I mean, if if you look at the put the pieces together, uh, sometimes uh, what we're sold on the media about you know selective sharing uh, and not truly exposing what's going on is really I think misleading us. And this misleading is uh, is like misleading the CEO of a company or the employees of a company that we're great until we're broke. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> we can we can accomplish. We have great minds. We have we have great capability in the United States. Uh, and uh, as long as you know we're not bamboozled and underestimate the competition. Great. And I'm afraid we're doing a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, one of other metaphors that you used um, is uh, that of an ocean in your podcast and talks. So, can you comment on that? What 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 is this ocean that you talk about? Sure. Sure. So uh, there is a few uh, kind of ideas. I call them the two Bs for an entrepreneur. One is that pilot idea that that I was, you know, the risk taker. They're pilots. They're navigators. Uh, another one uh, is this idea of an ocean. Uh, an entrepreneur cannot buy, sell, conceive, uh, run all of the companies or all of the things he do he or she does by himself. That is. I'm not building a product to sell to myself. <laughs> I need a customer. I need employees to help me. I need partners to provide me with the pieces of this thing. I need content. I need uh, supply chain. I need all that sort of stuff. So unless you want to produce and sell your own products, you have to live in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So I use the ocean and I call it your oceanness. <laughs> Uh, as a, as an analogy that says we need to operate as an entrepreneur in an ecosystem. Now you decide how big or small your oceanness is. That is, not everybody is, uh, you know, has the vision or the ability to be the Bill Gates or the Microsoft of the world, where they have 17 million people operating in their ocean. <laughs> we may have a donut shop. We may have a print shop. We may have a whatever our scope is. That is the way, uh, that's the place where we operate. And it is, how do how are we a provider to the people within that ocean? How are we a provider? Just like an ocean in that ecosystem provides. Um, when are we both calm and at the same time, we could be very scary when it's stormy. So our competition should be afraid of us, but at the same time, we have to be calm, cool, and collected. There are certain characteristics of an ocean that is giving, it is fluid, it's flexible, because uh, it, we need to be flexible as uh, as an entrepreneur. We can't say, this is my plan and heck with the rest of the universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to be able to evolve our plan, change our plan, adopt our plan in order to stay relevant. 
So all of that defines this idea of oceanness. As you can see, I, I, I just like, I don't know, maybe it's my character. I love to talk in analogies because I think uh, it, it communicates in a different way. And I believe everybody, every entrepreneur, uh, to, for that matter, every person uh, is very unique and has a unique philosophy of operating and entrepreneurship. And the idea is not to have a how-to guide, do this, do this, and do this, but to have the methodologies, the ideas to be spread in a way that you can then take them and make them your own. Uh, you know, if you look at the Steve Jobs of the world, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, and go all the way to uh, uh, Henry Ford and, uh, you know, and others, uh, they're all entrepreneurs. They're all very successful, but they're yeah. absolutely not the same. Each one of them is very unique. So good entrepreneurs have the ability to take ideas and see how it resonates with their own philosophy of operation and adopt those that make sense. And that's not a how-to. That's an internalization of a bunch of ideas that you put together and you create your own tapestry and that's the uniqueness of each entrepreneur. That's great. Um, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, um, it, the theme of the show is uh, bootstrapping and you know, we, we work with entrepreneurs and, and we uh, preach bootstrapping is one way to go. In fact, in some cases, it's a better way to go. And you know, you obviously, you have been a venture capitalist, so you will have a very good contrast between these two approaches. What are your thoughts about bootstrapping versus going with venture capital? I have done, I have done both, as you mean, multiple times. Yeah. Uh, my first advice when I have com you know, companies come to me and say, I say, you don't need me and you shouldn't get me or anybody else who sells you. If you can own 100% of your company and you don't have a guy pushing you all around because your agendas are different. You know, the agenda of an investor is to an exit because that's the only way he would get his money back. He's not interested in profit. He's not interested in your son taking over. He's not interested in a lot of other things. He is interested in pushing this from point zero to an exit, get out, cash out, however it is. And uh, he loves you until you perform. And then he wouldn't love you anymore, uh, regardless of how lovable you are. Uh, he's not uh, he's not married to your idea. He's married to the idea of an exit of selling. So my suggestion always is, if you can do it without, do it without. And in a lot of cases, you actually can do it without. The question is, if you manage your appetite for money, yeah. if you can manage your greed. Uh, no, some things you can't. If you're trying to be an Uber, and uh, still lose a billion dollars every quarter. Uh, no, yeah. that cannot be done by you know bootstrapping. Sure, but sure. to me, that's a stupid business model anyway. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we're going out to people, we're doing an IPO, getting some people's money, and then losing that money <laughs> in order to have some day, some time in the future. And the economics of it is just not clear. Uh, so there are some businesses that you just cannot do those kind of things. And those are businesses that are usually designed for rapid growth, huge exits because you're paying. That's how you get it. You get, as opposed to having a customer, 
finance your working capital, you're having a venture capitalist finance your working capital because guess what? Your business model is not proven. You still can't do it, and it is not foreseeable future. So my advice is do it in increments. Build things that can sell now. That's how you actually get better products because as people are consuming it, you would know that that works. If it doesn't work, you have not spent all of your life savings to do it. Now, you need two things for any business, regardless of the business. In order for you to go through, create a value chain of activities and create value for customers, employees, whoever you want, there has to be value created for that ecosystem. And it's not just customers. It's not just, I have the best product for my customer, but my employees are being paid 10 cents an hour. It just doesn't work. So there has to be that value created for the partners who are letting you go, for the investors, for, for everybody in the, in the game. So this definition of our, our, you know, our, our fascination with customers, we need to expand that. The value has to be delivered to all parties within the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. So my point is, in order for you to be able to make anything, anything, content, digital, non-digital, products, uh, whatever it is, you have to have all of that process and you have to create value. You need two things. You need a strategy, an approach that makes you unique and differentiated, and you need money. You cannot start a business without money. Whatever you want to build, now, consider your time is money. If you were going out and doing something, now you may value your time as $15 an hour. Somebody else may value their time as $500 an hour. But whatever you value it, there is a value to it. There's money that needs to be done, needs to be available, and there's a strategy that needs to be And the, both of them are equally important. Now, uh, I have entrepreneurs come to me and say, well, Sid, uh, you know, we need to raise $5 million. Okay, what do you have? Well, we have an app. We've tested it. We have, this is a true story, by the way. This happened like a few weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> we are three uh, individuals. One of us is an uh, engineer at, at Google. The other one is a consultant in retail business. And Okay, so what do you have? We have an app. Okay, mm -hmm. has it been tested? No. Uh, no, I don't want to explain what the, what the app was, but it it wasn't that great of a value proposition. But we need five million, and I said, why do you need five million? He said, well, we have families. <laughs> okay. We want to quit our jobs. Well, the role of a venture capitalist is not to pay your family. He has his own family. Yeah. So this illusion that somebody some some has been created that I go get somebody else. And then, uh, you know, they come, they give me money, and I pay for my family, and it's a job. Then that's a job. Yeah. You're looking for a job. You're not looking to be an entrepreneur. You're not looking for building a company. Building a company has some consequences, which is you have to talk to your wife. You're under the she or he. You have to talk to your husband. You have to be on the same page. There is pain along the way. It, couldn't, it doesn't need to be hugely painful. You don't need to sell your house and all that. But there is a pain. Uh, and, and that is a mutual pain. If you're not ready to do that, then I wouldn't suggest you jump in, you know, into the lake because you know, it's, it's dangerous. It's cold. It's, you know, you've you got to be able to swim. So uh, my point is I'm absolutely 100% for bootstrapping. 100%. Uh, but there are some businesses that requires significant money to run. Okay. But even if you're bootstrapping, that means uh, you have to put some money out. Yeah. But it actually forces you, what bootstrapping does, it forces you 
to be able to get to value faster. Exactly. Yeah. Because you have the pressure behind you, and you gotta get you gotta get something that is valuable to somebody to buy. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. So that actually expedites the process in a way of getting yeah. to value for customers. I completely agree. And that's, that's exactly why, you know, I, I started this uh, journey and I'm preaching this, this method because I've seen, um, you know, how traditional businesses have been built by bootstrapping, what are the benefits? And I've also seen the startups who raise money too early and what happens to them. So thank Correct. you so much for, for sharing your thoughts on that. And my pleasure, um, my pleasure, my pleasure. Now, it was enjoyable uh, to see been, you. Sorry, go ahead. I said it's been enjoyable to be in and talk with you. Awesome. Uh, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much. Now, before I let you go, can you tell us how people can reach out to you and connect with you? Sure. Uh, my email is the easiest, which is sid at mohaisab.com. Uh, my first name at my last name. Uh, and if they type in mohaisab.com, which is again my last name, uh, there's a whole host of things uh, there. It's my background and what I do, my speaking engagement stuff, uh, and it talks about my activities, uh, you know, all the time. Uh, what I'm doing, for example, I'm doing a talk tomorrow as a keynote speaker for DataCon, which is a big uh, event, a couple of thousand people in uh, in L.A. Uh, but, you know, I do a lot of speaking engagements different places, and I would love to have folks join me, reach out to me, and tell me that they heard me on your program. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. And uh, I wish you the best and all best with all the bootstrappers. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for now. Until next time. And if you are an existing or an aspiring tech entrepreneur, then I invite you to check out my new online workshop, Bootstrapping Your Tech Startup Dreams. Go to bootstraptechstartup.com and sign up for free. I want to make sure that more successful and sound decisions are made every day in your tech projects. Let's start finding solutions to your problems. So go to bootstraptechstartup.com and I look forward to helping you with your tech projects. If you want more engaging videos and insightful interviews with industry's thought leaders, then check out other videos we have picked for you, the link is right there. And if you want to be notified about our new content, please do consider subscribing to our channel.